Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guests are Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert, hosts and producer of Kaiser. In this episode, we talk about El Salvador, the volcano bomb, and the future of U.S. monetary hegemony. We also talk about their role in the whole thing, their impressions of the country, and how other countries may adopt Bitcoin. Max and Stacy, we are in El Zante. How are you? I'm feeling at home. I feel home. Yeah, it's great. Jimmy, you know, this is Bitcoin Beach, and you can feel the energy, the waves, the volcanoes, the people. You can feel it. You can feel the energy. Yeah, you definitely can, but it's so relaxing. You know, like, it's like a relaxing energy. I, I see that as being the biggest risk in being here, is that you just basically get to a point where you don't want to work anymore. It's just too <laughs> relaxing. You just, oh, man, I'm just going to go into the, the water, and that's it for today. Yeah, yeah, and certainly there's a lot of people doing that, where they just, you know, surf, and, you know, eat, and then surf, Maybe sleep in there somewhere, you know. Um, it's a lifestyle. And if, yeah, it's surfing. Of course, there's a big surfing community. And a lot of surfers come from all over the world because it's one of the top-ranked surfing spots in the world. It, it really is. And you can feel it in the water, can't you? Surfers have been coming here for a very long time. And I'm sure they're not happy with Max and Stacey for bringing down several thousand Bitcoiners here. Because they're <laughs> like, hey, all of our surf spots are clogged up with people like Max Kaiser trying to learn how to surf. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily true. It hasn't gotten that bad yet. No. Uh, but no. this place will get more popular for sure over the next few years. You know, the president and his team are going at full gallop all across his administration, making Bitcoin inroads into every aspect of life here. And, you know, curiously, Jimmy, I saw that the president was in Turkey speaking with the president of Turkey. I wonder if he's trying to orange pill, <laughs> orange pill the president of Turkey. Wouldn't that be interesting? That would be interesting. You wonder if there's like a fraternity of presidents that just sort of like do that, you know, like orange pill each other. There could be. So, you know, Turkey has, has undergone a dramatic financial and monetary upheaval. You see mm. that their currency collapsed and then it rallied and the volatility is enormous. And, of course, we say Bitcoin fixes this. So it might be something. I mean, that would be really incredible. I think Bukele is as good a salesman when it comes to Bitcoin as Michael Saylor is. Mm. I feel like you were right, Max, with Turgemeester back in 2014 that it'll be the smaller and nimbler countries. Turkey's a big country. And I think it's a hindrance if you were gold bugs. Because mm. it's a gold bug nation. Mm. So I think it takes them more to overcome the no to understand Bitcoin as a store value. Mm. That might make sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about why you guys are here. Like, because you've been here quite a while, if I'm not mistaken, and you plan to be here for a little bit. What's going on? What brought you here? Well, I really have no free will in this situation, <laughs> I have to say. I ask myself that, too, and I, I find this absolutely brilliant that I'm here, and I can't stop myself. It's like the game theory of this situation, this moment of hyper-Bitcoinization in, in El Salvador is Najib Bukele placed us all in the situation where if you're a Bitcoiner, 
you want them to succeed. You want him to succeed. You want the country to succeed. You want the volcano bond to succeed. You want everything about here to succeed. And you're driven here. You need to come here. And we've encountered lots of people having that same sort of thing from Guatemala, from Mexico, from Europe, everybody coming here because feeling the need to make this work, make this a success. You know, before it happened to me, I was like, oh, this is going to be like Renaissance 2.0. It's going to be like a modern day Florence and Bucelli's Medici. And then because I'm always fascinated by Renaissance Florence, like how did all those people end up in one spot like that? Mm. Like how it seems impossible. It seems statistically impossible that so much greatness can be in just one small spot in one specific time in history. And that's right now here in El Salvador, I feel. And I feel like I have no choice but to be here. <laughs> like I am a hundred percent committed to making this succeed. Well, you know, we can be here. So when we heard that the country was making Bitcoin legal tender, we quickly decided to move there, to go there, to be a part of it. Because, you know, this is the bleeding edge. This is the cutting edge of of Bitcoin, what's happening right here in El Salvador. I think we're entering into the era of El Salvador and Bitcoin. We were have been in for about two years now, the Michael Saylor era, which was, you know, when he came out and announced his $400 million purchase on MicroStrategy's balance sheet. And I think now we're entering into the Bukele era. He's over there in Turkey talking, I think, you know, talking to world leaders. He's got a few more stops on his itinerary, and he's going to be orange-pilling these these world leaders and talking to them about why it makes sense for them to become hyper-Bitcoinized. So that's the era that we're in now. So we wanted to be a part of it, and so we got here. And it's a very charming place to be. They're the, the hype surrounding it was wrong as it so often is it's just a very pleasant place the weather is incredible the people are great uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit bitcoiners are flocking here so it's uh, becoming a uh, really a great great situation mm. well I, I think you guys are a little more than involved i mean like <laughs> max you're the yeah. one that gave <laughs> Bukele the idea of a volcano bond and he seems to have executed on it did that surprise you at all what's the deal <laughs> Well, the you know the uh, Bitcoin back bond was first developed in 2014 by myself and Simon Dixon over at Bank of the Future, and he sold some over there on his platform. And then you have a Blockstream; they developed the Bitcoin Note, which is a Bitcoin back note. It's an interest-paying instrument. And the story is that when the IMF tweeted that they were going to they were not happy with El Salvador's getting involved in Bitcoin. You know, I said, hey, you know, you can sell volcano bonds, you know, bonds backed by this volcano energy, the mining rigs, and you can get rid of the IMF. And so that kind of articulated an idea that was floating about. And of course, my background is in finance and securities. So it makes sense that I would, you know, think of these in those terms. I've always thought of Bitcoin as an asset class going back to when we first got into it, because that's my training, that's my background. So the question always was, is it a stock? Is it a bond? Is it a commodity? Is it a security? You know, is it a, you know, what is it? And so when the news came out that they were going to do make Bitcoin legal tender, yeah, I immediately DM Simon Dixon, 
And, you know, we were just overflowing with joy because we would have been speculating for 10 years who, what country would do this going back really 10 years. And, and so there it is. So El Salvador pulled the trigger and I think it's going to start a huge wave. Mm-hmm. Well, so they have this volcano bond. You guys have been meeting with all kinds of people, if I'm not mistaken. You met, met some pretty prominent officials this morning that you tweeted about. The, the vice, vice president, president yes, right? yes, the vice president. The highest ranking person that's currently in El Salvador yeah, met right. with you guys. So, right. I mean, what's that been like? Because uh, in a sense, like, actually listening to you right like because mm. you're the experts on this stuff and and you're meeting with a lot of ministers officials what's that like so you also attended some meetings with us we invited you to speak to the majority leader here in congress and you see they're totally receptive open the opposite of the mindset of dictators or authoritarians they're open to hearing ideas every you encounter is young and enthusiastic and optimistic and they have so much hope for the future and they like the game going back to the game theory is they all need to make this work and they all want it to work and they are really interested in being the best they don't want to be half-assed right they don't want to sorry to swear but they don't want to be like you know, they want to do this right. They want to be the quality of Bitcoin. They don't want to be like one of these 7,000 or 8,000 or 9,000 imitators, like <laughs> kind of like that. They want to get it right. And I think when Bukele announced the Volcano Bond, when he also announced Bitcoin City at the same time, you know, he was talking about Alexandria and this as, you know, I think he sees El Salvador as like a city state like that old model of Florence, like a city-state. And that's what, I think that's a, a clever way to treat a tiny country. You have only 6 million, 7 million people here. You know, to the mindset to have is more nimble, right? And more like a mayor rather than, you know, you're not going to... Your neighbor is the United States with 350 million people on the world's biggest military and, and the U.S. dollar, which could, of course, crush anybody. So you've got to think nimble, you've got to be nimble, but you've got to be great, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I feel, is that he's surrounded himself. Again, you know, a guy who surrounds himself with good people, you have to be a strong person to do that, right? Because you don't want to be somebody else to outshine you. But he has all sorts of people, women, men, who could, you know, are the best and brightest of anywhere in the world that you go and meet, let alone a small country like El Salvador. They're just like amazing people. Is what I've encountered. What do you feel, Max? Mm. Well, I get the sense that he's delegated a lot of responsibility to his team and he's given them some degree of autonomy and a green light to just go and bring their best game, bring their A game. You know, and he's a really good leader. And the team that he's put together is responding. And with Bitcoin at the core and as the foundation, we know that the possibilities are really quite uh, remarkable. Mm. Think about his instincts, his political instincts. Mm. Like, where did this come from? Like, where any well-known person who gets, say, Joe Rogan mentions, hey, what about Bitcoin? What does he has an avalanche of shitcoin promoters in his tweet stream responding to him? Somebody like Bukele, 
the leader of a nation, they get hit with all the billionaire shitcoin promoters, right? Mm-hmm. The top guys who say, hey, I'm worth $20 billion, $30 billion, $40 billion, and then I can help you out. And yet somehow he resisted it and stayed with Bitcoin, mm-hmm. which is the only one that's money. Like, I think he has a very, very long game here. And I think he knows exactly what he's doing. It, it's been interesting to observe that there are some who doubt it. But I just think, like, you could see the choices he's made where a lot of other people, you know, strong, successful, you know, in their own industries, other people like Elon Musk mm-hmm. fall down, mm-hmm. like they fall short. And Bukele didn't at the right time. And that's interesting to me. Well, tell me about some of the stuff that happened. I think uh, there were, what promoters came here and what happened to them. I'm not sure if I could say which promoters, but you know, you can, the billionaire ones who uh, say are in the top 10 of the crypto coins. And they did all the stuff that they always do, you know, throw around some money and try to be the one, use our coin instead. And I think... My instinct is that this administration understands that those coins would make those promoters very wealthy, wealthier than they already are, and that Bitcoin makes their own population wealthy in very more than just like, you know, financial wealth, but in sovereignty, in time, and, you know, having control over their own future and destiny in a way that hasn't happened here. And you could see that, you know, for a fact that hasn't happened here. You don't even need to know anything about El Salvador other than that. The fact that 3 million Salvadorans live in America, like that is. And what's the population here? It's under 7 million. It's about 7 million between six and seven. Significant amount that are abroad. yeah. Yeah. And that was where everybody wanted to go and why, like, what do you get when you, you know, okay, obviously some people are going to climb the ladder there. That is America is like, you know, has had up until I say recently an American dream where you can climb the ladder. But for the most part, a lot of people are just going for low wage jobs up there where I think Bitcoin's going to bring higher wage jobs here and just more, Less fiat jobs, like less meaningless, pointless, dead-end sort of jobs at the end of, you know, at the late stage of neoliberalism that we have. It's just like a hollowed-out economy that we have in America as well. Like, it's not, I think, it's a new dawn here. Mm. Yeah, I think you have to also, I don't know if this for sure, but I think Safedine and Amus's book, The Bitcoin Standard, I think that was circulated here and it was read. And that does a fantastic job of laying out the case hmm. for Bitcoin and how it would impact a country like El Salvador. I see the uh, politician up in Canada is sounding a lot like he's been studying the Bitcoin standard. <laughs> really I, I, I think he admitted it on Twitter, actually. <laughs> yeah. He said, thank you, safety, for your books. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that book is having uh, a remarkable influence on politicians and countries around the world. And it's a, uh, it lays out a great case. And so people are realizing that this is something that is a way out from the fiat money nightmare. Well, let's talk about the situation El Salvador was in before. Because, mm. you know, like you see a lot of poverty and it's like there's a tendency for us to, I think, blame the locals, like blame mm. the people and say, oh, maybe they're lazy or something like that. When in fact, it's 
there's some other factors that come in, especially at the international monetary level, aren't there? I think the Salvadoran economy since the era of colonialism. I know, you know, I mean, part of the thing about talking about colonialism is that it kind of got hijacked by all those communists and the socialists who, you know, have kind of embarrassing slogans and all that stuff. But the thing is, you know, so when the Spanish settled here, you know, they took all the land from the native population who were living here. Okay, perhaps they didn't have legal courts and contracts and documents showing that they own the land but certainly i think it's quite obvious they lived here for several thousand years mm-hmm. <laughs> on the land so you know ownership is a nine-tenths of the law right like your possession is mm-hmm. like they're they're there right so it's always been in this country uh, an extreme disparity between the ownership of the property and so what happened is along comes like the post the struggle between that labor and capital and all that Marx sort of stuff is in the 1920s when you had the Catorce, the 14 families that owned everything here and the native population owned nothing. They had to work the land for the 14 families that owned everything. And so the economy was geared towards export purely nothing for a domestic population there was no no development of thinking of an investment in the local economy it was all towards sending you know cacao and coffee and sugars things like that commodities raw commodities out so when the there was a a giant crisis in the 1920s that caused the commodity prices to collapse what the 14 families here did was they started to seize more land, <laughs> even more land <laughs> that they could find from the, the indigenous population and force them to produce even more coffee and something like that to export more to make up for the lower price. That resulted in the first of the, basically uh, the U.S. really getting involved here. So they had what's called the La Matanza, which is the massacre, and the 14 families just massacred 30,000 natives the indigenous population just massacred them and chased them down. And like, they all dispersed and hid, like nobody wanted to be indigenous. It was a danger, but that brought in that, that sort of action actually brought in the U S corporations because this was like, they wanted a population that was controlled like this. And they wanted a population that would, could be just slaughtered essentially if they tried to organize, if they caused unrest in any way. And they wanted, it was just for export. So they wanted to export everything back to the U.S. market, but build it here with forced labor or uh, docile labor that could be, you know, controlled. Cut to then the Civil War, which, you know, Max and I, of course, remember because we were teenagers or older, you know, during the 80s under Reagan. And you had a similar situation there where it was, you know, financial crisis of the 1970s, the oil embargo, prices, uh, stagflation, everything was crisis back then. And we're starting to enter a similar sort of data and numbers right now. So this is something that uh, Max and I have already experienced as children. But what happened here was, again, you know, the unrest, the, the extreme poverty, people start to rise up. You see that every time we have a financial crisis, you saw it after 2008, you see it, you're starting to see it now after COVID and the lockdowns and all the money printing, you're starting to see unrest start around the world. 
But what happened here is you also had the Cold War going on. So you had the U.S. versus the Soviets. So the U.S. became, like, obsessed that the Soviets would take over here. And so anybody who was not one of the 14 families was a potential to be a commie. (laughs) You know, so their whole notion was just like, let's just slaughter all the communists, the potential communists, their base. And that's what you saw a very, very vicious, vicious uh, civil war here. And the U.S. played a very, very prominent role. Uh, We could go into some of the details about like the assassination of the archbishop, the El Mazote, which was an assassination, the slaughter, yet another slaughter. It's, It's marked by slaughters every few decades here, you know, from big international powers like the U.S. of El Mazote was uh, the slaughter of like 1,100 people, uh, mostly women and children, which just were who were slaughtered. And they just had the 40th anniversary, the remembrance of that just recently. But this is the situation of the sort of, you know, think of what your mentality is like every state in the u.s has their own unique culture and mentality based on the history and the and the weather and the and the the economy of that location but here you have the same repeated slaughters whether it's la matanza or el mazote and nothing gets done there's no international tribunal there's no repercussions for who the, the people who do this to the the population and that must instill some sort of sense that there's no recourse that these people there's a certain class of people that could just slaughter you if you want too much if you need title to your land if you need a bank account if you try to demand any of these things there's a sort of sense that that could happen up until now yeah i mean that's a really interesting history of what's happened right like it's population that's been subjected to a lot of conquest, a lot of uh, physical conquest, but that didn't really end with just the mere independence. It kind of continued in a monetary fashion. Yes. Well, so the IMF, of course. So after the Civil War ended in 92, you had the two parties. Like most Western democracies, we all have these two parties that seem to go back and forth and they maintain a status quo of a hopelessness, really, for most people, except for themselves. They're the cantillionaire class. They get all the government contracts. They build all the stuff. They, you know, they get all the benefits, and they might trickle down some occasionally to somebody else. But, yeah, so they've had to... how much of their GDP is uh, 100% debt to GDP with IMF sort of loans and stuff like this. It's, and you know what the IMF does. Everybody knows now. And again, it's like, you know, a lot of left-wing activists have kind of made uh, kooky statements and make it uh, cringe sometimes. But the fact is, like, they do force you. As Bukele said when he was running for mayor the first time in 2012, he mentions the IMF and he mentions that the fact that they force you not to invest in your own economy and your own people, that you have to cut investment in education. You have to cut investment in infrastructure. You have to cut investment in security. So what happens? Well, look at all the violence that happened here. Look at all the danger. Look at all the lack of education. That's why people flee to America. So that's the most important of all resources that were extracted 
from El Salvador over the past 40 years is the human capital, the humans that left this place. And it creates a sense of no hope and no future here, that the future is elsewhere. So why build here? And I think if you read Bukele's early writing, his, what he said in interviews, what he said in debates back in 2012, 2013, 2014, you see he talks about that needing to build, encourage, and offer hope in a way that people, the locals, the people born and raised here want to stay here and want to build here and want to live here and build their future here, not in America. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the two-party system. Just grinding on over and over again. So, Bukele, when he started out as mayor, he created this third way or third party, and it was very successful, and he won. And he's just been riding that right up to the presidency, and that's worked for him. That's been a successful formula. Yeah. Well, so talk a little bit more about the IMF, right? Like, how do they take over, and how does it sort of like, how do they take the resources of a country? Because that seems to be sort of like a recurring theme, especially in Central and South America and Africa and many other places where they'll come in, offer these loans, and then when they can't pay it back, they kind of take the stuff and then start imposing austerity and all this other mm-hmm. stuff. It, it just, you know, they call it austerity, but it's really just kind of taking their stuff, right? Like, yes, <laughs> so exactly. What, what's going on? Well, how does this all work? Well, Why is this, like, mafioso kind of behavior allowed? <laughs> okay, well, you've, uh, you've articulated it very well, right? So they, they make loans to these countries, uh, and they get the leadership to be somewhat corrupt in accepting all these huge loans. And then when the loans can't be paid back, they start extracting wealth. And as we know from John Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, mm. then the repercussions are they send in the hitman. They literally assassinate mm. government leaders. And it, it is a mafia model in that sense. It's a loan sharking model or a mafia model. And the IMF is a key element in, in all of that. And the reason it goes on is that it's highly profitable. Mm. So in America, if you can sell something as being highly profitable, people will embrace it. Because that idea of profit and making money is America's is driving force, if you will. So that's why it's profitable. The mafia is profitable. The, the IMF is profitable with that mafia model. And Bitcoin is a way out of it. So that's why they're not happy about it, because they're being shut. They're going to shut down their pipeline of money. These are also systems that have kind of developed over hundreds of years and think of like the british empire how they ruled and how how they operated kind of like a raj system you find one guy in india and you pay him a lot of money you give him a lot of wealth you give him a lot of power and a prestige and he controls the locals for you so the imf just needs to give find one person who through all the various institutions and powerful people can make sure that person rules and say here you collect a hundred million dollars and give us the rest all the resources of the country and just point to the contract Mm. we have a contract you know our whole system is based around contract law Mm. so that's how you know you could paint the peasants 
here in El Salvador in the 1920s and 30s as communists mm. because these commies want to redistribute this land. Uh-huh. And you're like, well, no, <laughs> they want their <laughs> land back, okay? Uh-huh. Okay, technically they didn't have a contract, but that's how it's presented the propaganda to the world. It's like, no, I'm Lord Snootypuss and uh-huh. I have the contract. <laughs> I have the title to this land. And this peasant wants it redistributed. They want, uh, you know, so they call them like Marxists and say that uh, when in fact it was the guy's land in the first place and they do the same thing with these contracts it's like well this guy signed the contract and they owe us their resources and it's fair deal right they signed the contract so they owe us this stuff Mm -hmm. well so it seems like the IMF has been using these loans as a way to sort of like trade printed dollars yes for real resources, yes. right? Like, and it's it's this, and it gets the world more on a dollar standard. And it seems like they're starting to back. Uh, like, this is one of the few places where they're able to roll that back. So, talk to me about you know the role that Bitcoin is playing in that sort of like de-dollarization or the de-monetary imperial like. Merch economic money. independence. Well, like, what, what, what volcano bonds, you know, it's a billion dollar deal and can scale up to a $20 billion deal. Mm. So they can pay down all their external debt. Mm. They can be a debt free country mm. on volcano bonds. And so that's a very appealing mm. position for them to be in. And I think that's a goal that they want to achieve. Mm. And so the IMF would not be sniffing around because they can't make money lending at less than one half of one percent they're gonna have to go force and go go somewhere else and take their bag of tricks somewhere else go back to haiti you know go back (laughs) Mm. to some of these other countries where they're continuously plundering well we were talking about haiti earlier Mm. like that history and how much they've been plundered is something i don't think that we really learned so can you Speak to that a little bit. What, well, I'm not an expert on it, but I do know. So I do know that El Salvador has mentioned it. The various ministers here have said it and tweeted about it, and they don't want to be Haiti. So what Haiti is is sure, of course, they're one of the first, if not the first, nation that was enslaved. They had slaves there, and France was the monarchy. They got their freedom before the American slave people Mm -hmm. the enslaved people there so france however they had to pay up until just a few decades ago Mm -hmm. they had to continue paying france for losing their property which Mm -hmm. is them Mm -hmm. they they were the property (laughs) Uh and like i was just saying like well we have a contract and we own you Mm -hmm. and therefore your ancestor your descendants will have to continue paying us for our lost property and it's like absurd right mm-hmm. but they're in a situation where what you see today mm-hmm. and i mean obviously it doesn't take much to realize that we send in the marines literally we've sent in the marines in the, under clinton and you know deposed their just flew their leader out of the country decided we don't like him mm-hmm. we're gonna take him out we're gonna take him away like how is that even allowed like mm-hmm. it just seems bizarre right but they don't want to be like that here because what Haiti is now is it's part of that cantillionaire class in, in America, like the Clinton Foundation. Okay, yeah. they have earned money operating, you know, cleansing their own reputation mm-hmm. by doing good work in mm-hmm. Haiti. Mm-hmm. 
when very little of it mm-hmm. ever shows up on the ground. Your friend was talking about, you know, just from new stories, being there in Haiti, and you see, like, people that were the victims of a natural disaster, say, a decade ago, they're still living in the tents, like mm-hmm. in, the, in refugee camps, all these years later. That's all they got from mm-hmm. the Clinton Foundation sort of people. Mm-hmm. A tent. Mm-hmm. And that's all they have. There's nothing... Nothing was provided to help invest in the people and rebuild and let them have their actual independence. Everything is like some sort of scam, like these shit coins that come here. That's (laughs) ultimately what they want is like you to get, okay, we're going to give you a tent. Look how great we are. We look amazing. And they take a photo of like, look, I donated this tent, but you're never going to be sovereign. You're never going to be independent. We're going to make sure, in fact, that you never have the capital to ever build your own economy here, a real economy. Well, I, Haiti to me is just sort of like the way that things go. If mm. you sort of like let the IMF and you know other countries sort of determine your destiny, but they seem to have taken their destiny and said, "We're going to take this and we're going to run with it." So what are some of the things that they're doing here? I know you've met with a lot of government leaders. What are some programs that they're doing? By the way, I do want to point out one thing about this IMF sort of model and how the U.S. uses it to... They have their own unique innovation in empire building, how they've done it, is through this debt contracts. They skip the... The Brits did that, but they also, the Brits built railways and, mm-hmm. and infrastructure. The U.S. doesn't do that, right? <laughs> they uh, take, and that's it. But notice how the U.S. Uh, is vocally saying, like, uh, accusing China of economic imperialism for doing the exact <laughs> same thing. And you're like, wait. Uh-huh. In Africa. Yeah. 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 And you're like, wait, isn't it the same exact thing? Uh-huh. Whatever. But, well, here, you know, they're building Bitcoin City. They're, like we said at the top, you know, they're very, very nimble and they're working fast to devise the legislation to go around, to create this city-state, to create the Alexandra model, to bring in the best and brightest from around the world. And they're spending a lot of time in our interactions with them in terms of how to educate the population and how to prepare the population, how to, how to bring best practices here, how to not fall into the, you know, the same sort of trap of, say, like uh, Panama. Like, you know, who wants to be Panama, right? Like with sleazy kind of dodgy offshore companies and who knows what's going on there. And they want to have, that's just like another sort of global Cantillion or oligarchy class. Like you want people who are going to build here that want to be here, that want to build here, that want to do stuff here and make this a place to live and a huge success story for Bitcoin. So I think my perception is that the media and Many people have the whole story wrong. The people who are negative about it, I think they're just, they don't get it. Because if you're here, you don't get infected. You're here. If you come here, you get infected with the optimism. You can't not see it. Like, unless you have some sort of derangement syndrome where you just, like, refuse to see the positive, it's hard to miss. Yeah, I think one of the benefits of having a Bitcoin economy is that it cuts away a lot of bureaucracy. Mm. Mm. So smaller enterprises can scale. 
And with this, put a lot of hard work, and you can go from one pupusa stand to five or ten pupusa stand. And because you're building on Bitcoin and it's sound money and it's uh, great money, it's perfect money, you don't have the need to go down to the local bureaucrat and spend time going, filling out forms and doing all kinds of other stuff. Because you've got great equity, you can just go to the bank and say, I've got fantastic equity, give me 10,000 bucks. You know, they're like, okay, cool. Because you've got Bitcoin. And it's not like, because uh, all in the fiat world, the value is managed by charade. And so there's a huge bureaucracy to keep that charade going, to keep the puppet show going. It's enormously complicated Rube Goldberg machine to make it look like fiat money has value. And that's the bureaucracy of it. And so small business people end up, you know, having trouble scaling. So I think here you're going to see a lot of entrepreneurialism. A lot of small businesses get bigger. The government's got the, the pet hospital, which they attribute to Bitcoin. They built a library down in the, the uh, San Salvador City Center. They're going to revitalize that whole area, which is interesting. Uh, uh, Bukele was, the, was, during his time as mayor of San Salvador, was did a huge job in revitalizing that. And that, that's a project that will continue. Bitcoin City is a big, big project. It borders a couple of other countries in the region. I think that'll get the word about Bitcoin. And uh, we're going to see some spillover impact on those countries as well. And so it, it's an idea, you know, it's an acorn that grows into big, big things. You know, as you know, mm. it started out with uh, the Genesis block. You know, here we are where we are today. And then we're just at the beginning. I think it's also interesting how necessity and need has driven a lot of this adoption here. You see it also with Nigeria, like any of these countries that are highly entrepreneurial. And yet, especially during COVID or any of the crisis where liquidity of dollars dries up globally, they can't trade. Right. Mm -hmm. So what happened in Nigeria during COVID is all the guys who import used cars from Japan, they couldn't get any dollars. So they had to turn to Bitcoin. Now that's almost a hyper Bitcoinized economy in Nigeria because of that. Here, I was talking to a local shopkeeper and she pointed out that they first started hearing about Bitcoin, the mention of it was from Europeans because they would come here and the shop would only accept cash. And cash here was dollars. Mm. And the Europeans would have euros, but no US dollars. Mm. And the nearest ATM was a, a you know bus ride away to El Tunco, the next town over. Mm. So then they would hear, well, how about Bitcoin? Do you take Bitcoin? <laughs> and they're like, what? Bitcoin? And so that became, Bitcoin's becoming the universal currency. That's money, right? That's that tier one, layer one. That's universal. Like mm. if it's the common currency. It's a common money. It's it's everybody uh, can think in, in it. And at least with the shop I was talking to, that's how she started to first hear about Bitcoin and accept Bitcoin. Well, so there's a perception here that's very obvious, right? Like you were saying, it's a very optimistic. A lot of people are excited. Mm. There's a lot of investment. But, you know... I don't think the IMF's giving up that easily. Um, oh, no. <laughs> there, there seems to be these stories that seem to be trickling out about you know how evil Bukele is. I think there's a perception that he's a dictator that all the like, and I see these threads almost like every week. It's mm. almost as if you know there's a concerted effort to make it look back. They, like 
three years ago, like nobody cared other than okay, it's murder capital of the world or something like that, and that was mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Now it's like they're they're almost digging. I don't know. It feels like they're you know, or the stories are spun in a way as to make. Bukele specifically and his party more generally like yeah. look very bad. What do you think about that? Is that a concerted attack or is it like just honest reporting? What's the deal? Well, Bitcoin has had this the whole you know <laughs> since twenty eleven. We've heard so much fud and so much like it was for drug dealers, it was for money launderers, it's for tax evaders, it's for hackers, it's for every bad person out there, right? We've heard that over and over since the beginning. So yet yeah, nobody likes no empire, no the masters of the universe, the people who are benefit from the current status quo, mm. they don't like somebody to have to show them up by actually doing and succeeding. You could, again, like, I don't follow any of the particulars of, like, the party politics and partisanship and stuff like that. All you need to do is look at the numbers. Run the numbers. Mm-hmm. Look at how many people left El Salvador mm. over the previous 30, 40 years. Mm. Millions. Mm. That tells you everything you need to know. Look at America. 100,000 people overdosed last year. Mm. The number one cause of death for 18 to 45-year-olds is overdose. Number two is suicide. That tells you a lot that whatever the statistics are, whatever the news says, the numbers show you that something's not right there. People are coming back. People are moving from around the world. You've probably received, because you're here, you're probably receiving messages like, what's it like? Oh, my God, I'm I'm thinking of coming. Should I come? And we get that nonstop. So that's like, that's what they don't want. They don't want a good example. They don't want an alternative. They want only their model as the option because they're lazy and they don't want to compete. Right. And trust in U.S. media, I believe, is at all time low. (laughs) <laughs> I, th- I think Ooh. that less than 15% of Americans trust the media, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's different than in Walter Cronkite days where maybe 80% of the people trusted the evening news. So the news media business in, in the U.S. and around the world is entirely untrusted. And America's run out of good propagandists, I would say. Yeah. The propaganda is an art that requires some skill. And I don't know where the good propagandists are in America, but they're not working for CNN or MSNBC or Washington Post or the New York Times. Like Paul Crack, Paul, Paul Krugman is a propagandist. He's been shown to be a propagandist. He says blatantly retarded things, if I may use that phrase, without getting too much trouble. Uh-oh. But he, he says blatantly, obnoxiously ill-informed things that are in the service of his masters of the elite, the banking elite. I mean, he just says uh, insane things. So, and when you have alternative and alt media like Joe Rogan and others, where they are trouncing CNN, I think Joe Rogan's audience is twenty times CNN, <laughs> right? So, when you see stuff about uh, Bukele from American propagandists, it's just another meme, right? It's just like it's just like it's here for a second and it's gone. It's it's a meme. It doesn't mean anything. That the numbers don't support it. 
Bitcoin is exposing all of the, the charlatans and these folks. And I think Kelly laughs. He's tweeting and just mocking these people. He told uh, Moody's to go fuck themselves. Yeah. He tells the IMF to go pound sand, which is the correct. This is the correct. You can't give them any respect because they don't deserve any respect. They're the lowest level mafia leg breaking scumbags. The IMF, the Washington Post, the New York Times. They've got no no moral sense whatsoever. No credibility. Nobody believes them. I also like. I know we live in a day and age where like the meaning of words mm-hmm. have like pretty much reversed of what they used to mean. <laughs> and you know what I mean, right? Yeah. And so like when people say dictator, I'm like, the guy was just elected. Like he created a new party to run for a president and he swept the mm-hmm. Congress, everything. Like mm-hmm. he was elected, right? Democratically elected. Yeah. yeah. And the people, you know, if you've ever been to a dictatorship, like when we were in Cairo, you know, and you're there mm-hmm. under Mubarak. Ask, try to ask somebody like, "What do you think? Do you think Mubarak's a jerk? You mm-hmm. know, or anything <laughs> like? Do you think he's fat? Like, they're not going to say. Nobody's going to tell you the truth, right? Nobody's going to say any opinion about mm-hmm. Mubarak because he's a dictator and he'll have you killed, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. so it's a word that has no meaning anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it means. I don't know what yeah. it means when they say that. So I, mean, I think of America in the fifties under Eisenhower. I'm sure a lot of people in different countries said he's a dictator. Mm-hmm. You know, he built the highway system mm-hmm. and he warned against the industrial military complex. And mm-hmm. insecure people are say stupid shit. Mm-hmm. So it, it, well, there's there's nothing that backs it up. And by the way, these people are also tearing down statues of like Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you know, like he gave you the freaking Constitution to the United States of America. Before the white paper, that was like one of the most amazing mm-hmm. documents ever written mm-hmm. in human history. So, like these people are like, mm-hmm. they've lost their minds, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Man. it's strange because, like, you know, we we were talking earlier about like you guys being on the front page of the opposition newspaper. Yeah, the fact that they have an opposition newspaper tells you that exactly. It's yeah, not a dictatorship. Yeah, you know, like people are like, oh, but he changed the constitution so he could run again. Yeah, he did it legally. You know, this yeah. is the constitutional amendment process. It's like as if that's I don't know, like improper or against the rules of democracy or something. I don't really get it. Uh, if you say, "Oh, Joe Biden is a senile uh-huh. somebody with cognitive problems mm-hmm. who should be in an assisted living facility, mm-hmm. uh, whose policies are incredibly dangerous for Americans," he's a, a dictator via senility. Mm-hmm. That's a topic that should be explored. That's an interesting topic. <laughs> but you don't see anybody talking about that in the U.S. where they should be concerned about their own problems. Uh-huh. right? Why are they even concerned about <laughs> this country? Because of the IMF and the extraction model that mm-hmm. gives Americans a comfy lifestyle by stealing other people's resources. So but they feel like they've got to stick their nose into these other countries' business. Also, like I'm not sure what the, why the Constitution, and I'm assuming it has something mm-hmm. to do with the United States and a mm-hmm. lot of this region. Mm-hmm. They only allow one-term president, mm-hmm. which kind of seems like you're a lame duck <laughs> as soon as you get in, so I'm hey. not sure. Which maybe like that's a good thing if if it's a politician, but if you happen to encounter a leader mm-hmm. and you know you want them to have more than one lame duck session, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I'm not even sure, like why it's the rules of the game are very fluid, right? So Merkel, what she was a the mm-hmm. chancellor of Germany for what, like 17 years, mm-hmm. 
the people would have reelected her if she mm-hmm. if she could have run if she wanted, mm-hmm. but she decided to retire just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So, like, why is she not a dictator? I don't mm-hmm. understand like the rules of like why she's not a dictator, mm-hmm. even though she had a wide support. People loved her, and people love Bukele. Like, mm-hmm. maybe who knows? I don't know if he's going to run right. again. Well, but so attached to this sobriquet of dictator, usually the next thing that comes out has to do with human rights abuses. Uh-huh. Okay. The U.S. has the largest prison population in the world. Mm-hmm. The U.S., as Stacey mentioned, 100,000 Oxycontin overdoses, another 100,000 suicide deaths, biggest cause of death. You've got systemic apartheid going mm-hmm. on with the black community being imprisoned to supply cheap labor. Slave labor has been made legal again mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those are human rights issues. Mm-hmm. So the person in charge is a dictator. Mm-hmm. Okay, versus let's say El Salvador, they're giving people individual sovereignty and freedom with Bitcoin. It's entrepreneurial. GDP is being boosted. There's this huge community sense. People are coming here. Tourism is booming. Perception is changing. That's a freedom fighter. That's mm-hmm. a freedom fighter. That's a freedom what, fighter. What, so, yeah, that's a good point because what sort of dictator gives a tool for? individual sovereignty mm-hmm. to their people like that's the last thing you want them mm-hmm. to have right mm-hmm. you don't want them to know about how to have unconfiscatable wealth mm-hmm. and individual sovereignty so right. why would you do that they always said the same thing about putin too you're like what sort of and i would ask like what sort of dictator pays down all that debt he paid off the imf debt mm-hmm. remember that mm-hmm. And then he built up, he, they have like $700 billion in reserves mm-hmm. and gold and other instruments. Mm-hmm. Like, dictators don't build mm-hmm. a huge pile of national wealth for the people. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the exact opposite of what they do. They plunder the nation. Right. They turn Meanwhile, it into San Francisco, the big tech companies obviously scammed the, uh, San Francisco out of all the money they need to stop people from pooping in the streets, dying from <laughs> overdoses in the streets, and living like, you know, Calcutta in the 1970s. That's dictators. Oh, uh, that's a good point because, you know, yeah, a lot of this, like the charges of dictator, obviously, you know, people should always be uh, nonstop, you know, challenging authority and challenging the boss the guy setting the rules that's that's one thing but when it's people like the san francisco sorts the silicon valley sorts leading the charge it's like you know in terms of human rights disasters look at san francisco mm-hmm. look at australia look at, yeah yeah look at those situations and maybe look at yourself and try to fix yourself and it also matters, by the way, is momentum and trajectory. Mm, mm. So the U.S. was like an amazing place, right? It is an amazing place. It's founded on amazing documents by amazing mm. people, amazingly flawed people. <laughs> yes, like if you look back on history and the things that were accepted at the time are no mm-hmm. longer accepted. And but when it's going down and you see that with the despair, those deaths of despair, as we've already commented here, it's the opposite. You've had we've they've hit bottom el salvador's hit bottom they had peak murder rate homicide bleak situation millions fleeing and now it's the tide is turning so i think that when the tide turns 
there's no stopping that force of it coming in, right? There's nothing they could say. They could call them all sorts of names, but sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Uh, I can guarantee anyone using the word dictator is either a shitcoiner or a no-coiner. Mm. Well, I mean, there, there are people that are calling that even within the Bitcoin community, mm. but... What's but do they even understand Bitcoin? Yeah. Because, I mean, I've tussled with a, a few people in the Bitcoin community, mm-hmm. and they lack faith in Bitcoin. Mm. They feel like... No, uh, no. Okay. I, I'm with Jimmy, and I mm-hmm. understand. I know who he's talking about, and there are genuine, genuine, hardcore, really good Bitcoiners who have said that, but I think, yeah. They're, I mean, they seem confused. to be falling for propaganda, in, yeah. a, in a way. Because, yeah. like, that journalist, like, a spyware story, right? Yeah. That to me is like focusing on the one wart on like somebody's face instead of like the rest of who they are or something like that. Like everybody has warts, right? Like, yeah. and they're like, okay, well, this is evidence that the entire person is so completely well, right. And that, know, that story like, was sourced from a group of like mm-hmm. fifteen different entities mm-hmm. that are all think tanks in Washington D.C. Yeah, so it's propaganda. Yeah, well, but that, uh, my also it, like you know the average American commits four felonies a day. Yeah, for a reason. That they control you. That's yeah. a great. Uh, just like what I said. That well, mm-hmm. we have this contract that we mm-hmm. have the title to this land, not you, indigenous <laughs> population that has lived here for thousands of years. Well, they do the same thing. It's like, well, Stacy, you know what? You're, you're starting to make trouble. You know what? We have all these felonies, the four <laughs> felonies a day you've been committing for the last twenty years. Well, here's what you did. And the same thing with this, like this software. Like almost all, like as Edward Snowden revealed, and also Julian Assange when he released the Vault Seven stuff. Like they're the ones that created all these back doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, mm-hmm. you're a tech guy, a mm-hmm. coder, and you know mm-hmm. like what they want to introduce onto these. But they're the ones that created these back doors. They could install anything on anybody's computer. All journalists across the world, mm-hmm. and whoever, if they decide they don't like that leader, well, oh look, look what we found. We don't know who put it there. It must have been the, the well, guy the we CIA don't like. was found to hack Angela Merkel's phone. Mm. Yeah, it feels like almost in the name of balance, like people want to believe some yeah. bad things or something like that. Yeah. And instead, it's like instead of focusing on all the good things that are happening and all the mm. interesting, like you know, we went to visit like the houses that they're building with like this innovative like Bitcoin mortgage mm. payment thing. Like, that's really cool, right? Like, and that sort of innovation isn't happening in the U.S. It's happening here in El Salvador. That's yes. amazing. Yes. But, but instead of focusing on that stuff, it's like these kind of random, like, almost unrelated warts as if they're re- relevant to the work of what's happening. Well, here, look, right? if you're a human rights person, you're going to find human rights violations. <laughs> if you're a uh, left-wing uh, social justice warrior, you're going to find LGBTQT violations. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, it, you come you come to Bitcoin who you are. Mm. And that's it. And, and you can't see it in any other lens but the, who you are. Mm. So that would be more interesting if somebody who is not related to those industries just you know had an opinion that was a contrast to mm. what they would be normally doing mm. then you'd say well hmm, that's interesting because they're normally you know in that other industry they're looking at it from their industry this is what we're, we're finding in, in the medical what's going on with the pandemic but when you just have people just espousing the talking points of their industry they're mm. just looking for stuff to talk about because that's what they do that's mm. their job mm. also by the way you know i don't think journalists are even though we're journalists like i don't think they have more rights above any other citizens right (laughs) yeah i think all people should assume that 
any communications they're having digitally are intercepted. I do that. I know our communication, like when Hillary lost spectacularly in a humiliating fashion and mm-hmm. she can't get over it, like to Donald Trump, <laughs> like she blamed us. The DNI report blames Kaiser report. She, they re, they reported on Kaiser report. So I know anytime I send a mm-hmm. communication, even on so, you know, so-called encrypted stuff like mm-hmm. signal, I still assume it's actually being read by mm-hmm. the CIA or NSA. Cause I don't believe for one moment that they don't have some way of, of accessing that, that. That's why you should use PGP. That's, yeah. uh, <laughs> well, I'm not as like, clever as you are, but I just like... The UI on it is, is, is horrible, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, but if you can't, like, that's like early Bitcoin. It's like, <laughs> that's why we all got wrecked because it's like, there was no UI and it was just so you had to be clever. <laughs> but, you know, I always just assume that they're reading everything that I'm mm. communicating and be aware of that. So everybody should do that, though. Mm. Unless you're clever enough to mm-hmm. be like Jimmy Song and uh, communicate. Yeah, PGP is not that hard, but it is kind of broken. I do feel like there's room for more encrypted like messaging. That's like you know where you host your own server, so there's no backdoor or something yeah. like that. I think I think we're gonna see more and more of that because mm-hmm. I see people talking about that all the time, where you have your own server and you maintain all your own documents and stuff like that. Because yeah, how many times do we have to be hacked and mm-hmm. our data leaked before that? changes sadly if it's free not uh, a lot of people <laughs> keep doing it uh, yeah the other thing that i wanted to talk about is, is sort of like the opposition parties here who are doing all of the complaining that are sort of like you know hinting at human rights abuses and things like that what i find really interesting is that both opposition parties seem to be saying you know we really should be going back to the imf and you know, doing what they tell us to do instead of all of this stuff that, you know, that our people want. All, uh, <laughs> all these old parties, whether it's here in France, uh-huh. the U.S., like, it's all, like, the young people, they're over that. Like, mm-hmm. they're just over those old ideas. They're mm-hmm. over the boomers, the Ponzi scheme they want to mm-hmm. keep afloat. Everything you see in the United States and around the world is about keeping the boomers Ponzi scheme <laughs> alive. Everything. Literally. Max can speak to this. He's a a boomer, the, the very youngest of them, but still, mm. we blame him in That's our true. household. Yeah. <laughs> Max is a That's true. <laughs> it all feeds the um, boomer Ponzi scheme. Everything is for that. And it's falling apart. So the two parties here that are in opposition, they're boomers. And uh, they're very, very weak. They, mm. it's, it's laughably foolish. Mm. Uh, they thought that Bitcoin was going to not work in the beginning, and now mm. they're backtracking because it's mm. kind of a big hit. Mm. So they have to backtrack on that. And uh, they don't really have any points to make, any valid points to make. And they're, it's very small, and, it's, and they're just, like I think, there for a laugh. Well, are, are they sort of aging out? Are they younger people like coming no? They're all. They're, they seem to be all you know boomers and aging out, and mm-hmm. nobody in the millennial or Gen Z that I'm aware of is against uh, what what Bukele is doing. Mm. Yeah, he seems to be very popular, mm. uh, and a lot of people are very excited. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of the stuff just sort of like on our own, right? Like, yeah, you know, seeing you know houses being like this. It's just stuff going on. It's kind of crazy. And, uh, yeah, people are being self-sovereign, it seems. I hope it succeeds. He always says Singapore. He wants Mm -hmm. us to be like Singapore. Mm. And I think they deserve it. Mm. I think they've had hundreds of years of bad times imposed upon 
mm-hmm. the people. And I think it's time for good times. Like, mm-hmm. I think they deserve it. And I think Bitcoin it was like a clever end run around the control mechanisms, those mechanisms of control that have succeeded for hundreds of years here Mm. to keep the population from accessing the opportunity and the resources here. I think that seems like a human rights issue. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly right. Like Uh what about the human rights issue? That's a human rights issue of 3 million people. Most of them, by the way, having to cross like across Mexico, dangerous thing. Like going over and this is a very mountainous region, so it's not easy to travel. <laughs> no, Salvador. Yeah. No, so it's not like I think that's a human rights disaster. I think it's a disaster, even worse than San Francisco. Like you know, <laughs> like the fact that so many people left this country. I just find that like by uh, forced because of the plunder. And who oversaw the plunder? I, you know, I, I don't want to get involved in any local politics, but I just feel like who was involved in the plunder? Well, in the U.S., we had the Democrats and the Republicans overseeing it, which is a, a bit different in the U.S. because you have states, like states have a lot of power and they can do, create their own unique environment and economy there. Here, it's just like one small nation state. So it's just two parties, two parties that plunder and We've had that in many uh, countries around the world for the last, since 1971. And they've all plundered, they're all quintillionaires, and they've all just taken and given nothing back and they don't build. And that's what fiat incentivizes. It, it incentivizes destruction. And that's what Bukele said to the UN in 2014, is that we, can, we need to start building instead of destroying. Like, this is what humans prefer to do if we give them the opportunity Profound words indeed. Any last thoughts on what you think this place will be like in, say, five years? Oh, it'll be busier and busier. I think they're going. It, it's going to be. I think it's going to be better than Singapore. Singapore, to me, is not like I like Florence. Like I feel like it's it's a deeper richness that could be here. Like culturally rich, like art and fun things and building things. Like uh, Singapore is certainly a, a huge success and. Obviously, they've done very well financially, but I think there's even more. I think there's something deeper that's going to happen here. Right. Well, it's definitely going to be a lot more activity, a lot more going on, and it's going to become a really big hot spot, you know, for sure. Maybe you guys will be citizens here or something? I hope so. This soon, is, this is a, every day we're working towards this. Yeah, yeah. coming soon, coming soon. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks for sure. coming down here, Jimmy. Jimmy. <laughs> Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Max can be found at at Max Kaiser on Twitter, and Stacy can be found at at Stacy Herbert on Twitter. Until next time, fiat the one best.